Welcome to the first of three interviews with the faculty of the Educational Initiative Managing Hyperglycemia in Inpatients, Ensuring Success. The interview series was produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk, Inc. It was recorded in December 2013 during the 48th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting and Exhibition in Orlando. This interview features Dr. Curtis Triplett, who served as chair of the Educational Initiative. Dr. Triplett is Associate Director of the Diabetes Research Center at the Texas Diabetes Institute, and he is also on the faculty of the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. Carla Brink, Scientific Project Director with the ASHP Office of Professional Development, conducted the interview. Welcome, Curtis, to this conversation this afternoon. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, good. Well, when you're looking at guidelines for managing hyperglycemia, the American Diabetes Association and American Association of Clinical Endocrinologist Guidelines for Inpatient Glycemic Control are probably the best known. They were released in 2009. And how were these guidelines formulated? Well, as most guidelines, a consensus group of physicians kind of came together. And the reason why they came together in this instance is because they really want to reexamine the guidelines that were previously published. The previous guidelines, as you may recall, targeted in uh, ICU patients a glycemic control of about 110 to 140 or 100 or even 80 to 110 based on, on different guidelines. And this was all based on the Leuven-Vandenberg articles that were released. But now with the new guidelines that have been released, they've been moved up to an initiation of about 180 milligrams per deciliter and a goal of about 140 to, to 180. And the nidus for this was really, and all the guidelines are on the same page here, is really the Nice Sugar article that was published in March of 2009 in the New England. And this was about 6,100 subjects, and they were pretty sick people. So they had a PETCHI 2 score of about 21 when they came in. More than 90% of them required mechanical ventilation during the admission. After the study was done, the mean plasma glucose in the intensive group was about 118 versus in the non-intense group about 145. Unfortunately, mortality in the intensive group was actually higher, significantly higher than in the conventional group. And based on this, they couldn't keep the old guidelines of 80 to 110. And so what they've now learned is that, unfortunately, that type of a glycemic control range will increase their risk of severe hypoglycemia uh, many-fold. And in the case of nice sugar, it was about 10 10 to 15-fold higher. Okay. Well, are these ADA ACE guidelines still relevant and up to date? I, I think that's a good question because many people say, oh, if your guideline is more than a couple years old, is it still relevant? Is it still up to date? And in this case, I think the answer is yes. So there haven't been any other large randomized clinical trials in this space since Nice Sugar was released. Most of the guidelines, when you read them, start talking about different meta-analysis that they've looked at since the release of Nice Sugar. So, and of course, meta-analysis can be highly affected by the inclusion and exclusion criteria for the different uh, trials or different articles that are put in or not put in. And so, based on that, that's where a lot of the different guidelines now slightly differ is based on uh, if they put in or don't put in certain articles into their meta-analysis. So I think the listeners should feel comfortable if their health system is using these still, that uh, they still have up-to-date guidelines for their particular ICU. Well, that's good to know. Other organizations have also put out guidelines for inpatient glycemic control. How do these differ in philosophy from the ADA-ACE guidelines? I think some of the other organizations 
started to, as I said, use that other meta-analysis techniques to kind of look at uh, subgrouping some of these different issues that they wanted to look at to say, hey, what is it that really matters in our, our patients that are on the inpatient glycemic control side for ICUs? And I think what they came up with really is not too much different than what the ADA said. So they ended up going probably anywhere from not hypoglycemia to 140 on the low range of glucose to no more than 180 to 200 on the, the high range. And there's really three organizations that need to be mentioned. Uh, the first is called the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. And, of course, that's exactly what it says. These people were looking at what is the best way to treat sepsis. A little sliver of that was actually glucose control in the ICU setting. And they said there's nothing that says that uh, mortality is reduced below 180, but we know that high glucose can cause problems and increase mortality. Thus, we're asking you to implement something if you're more than 180, and we also ask you to stop the protocol if they get hypoglycemia. American College of Physicians are a little bit different. What they did is they said the high goal is a little bit nebulous. So they said, we don't know if 180 versus 200 makes a difference. So what we would ask you to do is definitely implement more than 200, though it's not explicitly stated. Less than 200 is what we want for your sugar, and we want your lower end to be about 140, mostly to avoid hypoglycemia. And the last one, I think, which is uh, one that the critical care medicine people may know, the American College of Critical Care Medicine, took a little bit different stance, and theirs was to say that we want to implement at 150. And the interesting thing about them is the reason they said 150 is because it was clinical inertia. So they said 150 so that they knew most clinicians by 180 would actually implement it. And they explicitly say that in there, that we're choosing 150 so that most people by the time they're 180 will actually implement these guidelines. Uh, other than that, uh, they have it slightly different for traumatic brain injury or hemorrhage, any kind of brain injury. They don't want the sugar to go below uh, 100, and they would like the high end for that one to be less than 180. Everyone else, they're still targeting less than 150. They're probably the most intensive for the goal among those three different groups. But overall, if you look at that, we're still talking about somewhere between hypoglycemia to 200 milligrams per deciliter. And I think that's the take-home message, is that we want to avoid hypoglycemia, and we don't want sugars much more than 200 in our inpatient glycemic control protocols. Okay. When you're looking in non-critically ill hospitalized patients, the glycemic goals for this population have been addressed by several organizations, including ADA and the Endocrine Society. How evidence-based are these guidelines? Well, unfortunately, they're not very evidence-based. Oh. Um, they're almost exclusively expert opinion. And so that's something for people to remember. In general medicine wards, there's really a scarcity of evidence as far as what the target should be. So when you read it, they, in general, want the sugar to be less than 140 fasting, less than 180 uh, throughout the day. But there's really no randomized clinical trial that backs up that particular recommendation. Uh, the only one that even comes close is a, a little trial called the Rabbit 2 Surgery Trial. And this was not necessarily looking at that, but it was looking at sliding scale insulin versus basal bolus insulin. Uh, significantly more people got their average glucose below 140 in the basal bolus therapy, and that decreased infectious kind of complications like pneumonia and sepsis and things like that, but it didn't decrease mortality. So really uh, flimsy as far as those inpatient glycemic control uh, recommendations for general medicine wards. Well, are there any differences between the goals of the two organizations? No, actually they're very, very similar. So if you look at the Endocrine Society and the ADA, basically identical. Well, that's good. The experts agree? Yeah, that's right. 
if you had a patient diagnosed with diabetes, and this could either be new or established diabetes, who is being discharged in the next 48 hours from the hospital, what do you think are some of the important transition of care points to get through to the patient? As we move forward in Medicare and, of course, the Affordable Care Act, we have to remember that Medicare is penalizing hospitals for readmissions. And so one of the biggest transition of care issues is really readmissions, and I think that means that we need to help with their transitioning out. So discharge planning is important, very important. So we need to cover what I call the survival skills of someone who may have diabetes on their way out of the hospital. That includes making sure the medications are correct, that if their sugars are well controlled on admission, that we kind of go the other way too and get them out on the same admission plan, that their meal planning is done basic so that if they don't know what a carbohydrate is by the time they leave the hospital, at least they do, when and why and where to test their blood sugar. And especially because when you get out of the hospital, sometimes you're still not feeling great, making sure they understand what to do if they're feeling sick and who to call and when to call them for follow-up and emergencies is so important. Well, Curtis, you're a pharmacist specialist, and you primarily see patients with diabetes in the outpatient setting, Mm -hmm. and many of whom uh, may have recently been discharged from the hospital. If you had any advice or words of wisdom Mm -hmm. uh, for your colleagues in hospitals um, related to the management of hyperglycemia, what would that be? I think if I had one statement to tell them, it would be the same problems that got them to the hospital often persist into the community. And what that means is that the same reason they ended up in the hospital is likely the same reason they're having problems in the community, whether that would be uh, socioeconomic or medication-wise or health-wise. Even though we tend to segment them into inpatient and outpatient issues, really they're across the spectrum for that particular patient. And so we see those people who come out of the hospital, they come to us, and we don't actually in the first visit oftentimes get to address glucose because most of the time we're just dealing with all the things that happen in the hospital. Antibiotics continued, looking at the wounds, things like that. So it's usually the second or third visit out of the hospital we actually get to really getting down to trying to help them with their glucose. The other thing to remember is that their meal pattern in hospital versus out hospital is drastically different. And so glucose-wise, usually we have to intensify their therapy coming out of the hospital. Well, that's good advice. Thank you. Well, and thank you, Curtis. Uh, This was very interesting, and I'm sure that our listeners will value your perspectives on these issues. Thank you. You're welcome. This concludes this faculty interview. If you'd like to hear more about managing hyperglycemia in inpatients, please listen to the other two interviews in this series. In addition, a web-based continuing pharmacy education activity based on the Mid-Year Symposium will be available in mid-February 2014. To access this activity, and other educational opportunities on this topic, visit the web portal at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash hyperglycemia.